Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of The Bubble. Episode 12, we're nearly teenagers. Yeah, and we're, we're on, a, on a monthly roll. We are on a... <laughs> can you call it a roll if it's the second... One yeah, of the yeah, role. We definitely can. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, living our best life currently down at the Beer Merchants Tap. Uh, Rob and I are supping on not one but two varieties of Cantillon while we record this. Yeah. Uh, courtesy bu- of our sponsors, Beer Merchants. The, the bubble is uh, not dead. We're firmly in it as we sip on our, our Cantillon with a Taras Bulba. Life's good. We were telling like, ourselves this wasn't going to be strictly a beer beer podcast, but look at us now, motherfuckers. Um, yeah, so this week uh, we have uh, a good friend of mine again, uh, a guy called Nick Carvel, who I went to university with and who is uh, now a freelance fashion writer but former associate editor of fashion at GQ uh, and a very talented and knowledgeable man, it turned out, Definitely. Uh, about trends in fashion and beyond. Um, yeah, it was something that I wanted to do from the get-go when we uh, formulated this, this podcast because we're, we're awash with trends in beer. Um, mainly hazy trends um, of the New England variety. We've not been able to shake that, um, but like the fashion world, it, it, trends seem to come and go and go in cycles, and I think we can take a lot from what the fashion world has, has taught us. I suppose they're... Uh, yeah, I mean, we think that we've got this unique beer world where we came up with everything, but no, we took these single drops, these big height, these big cues, and these wacky, uh, endlessly... Uh, innovative air quote uh, ideas mostly from fashion um, so before we introduce Nick we should say some caveats a little bit of research that you should do before you listen to Nick yeah yeah so get on Google um, if you don't know it look up Supreme it's a skateboard company look up their brick um, and just <laughs> they, that's a sentence they made a brick uh, it cost 100 quid um, and they've just they've lobbed this red um, rectangle with Supreme written on it um, on loads of t-shirts and loads of other things and sold it for a lot of money and if you go down Soho on a Thursday outside their store there is a very long queue with lots of security guards um, as people try and buy bricks and <laughs> hedge clippers and <laughs> shit like that yep. uh, and, and also that shoes yeah the that. Bal- <laughs> Balenciaga Those shoes. so Balenciaga are a very high end luxury fashion brand they make very ugly shoes and very strange shirts. So I would Google... Big, Google big, those. God big, knows how you spell Balenciaga. Big, stupid Balenciaga shoes. And uh, another one worth looking up is the Balenciaga double shirt. Yes. Two shirts. 
one man. <laughs> so yeah, do look those up and then enjoy uh, this insightful uh, podcast with the excellent Nick Carvel. Let's talk about Beard Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Imbibe buyouts of Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, Pleasure. Coming all the way out to Hackney Wick. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first so that I'll, I'll, I'll I was about to say viewers. I'm stuck in YouTube. Listeners know more about you. Uh, sure. Well, podcast history. Um, I'm now a uh, freelance menswear uh, writer, editor, and consultant. Um, my career up until this point, I was uh, associate style editor of GQ for about five years. Um, I was. I started out being the social media editor at Mr. Porter when they were setting that up back in the day. And most recently, I was editor of a men's magazine called The Jackal. Uh, so back men's to... Men's wear magazine. Men's exactly. What magazine sounds very different. <laughs> uh, yeah, not, uh, not the kind of men's magazine that... Maybe my head's in a different position than, than yours. Um, no, uh, a men's uh, fashion lifestyle yeah. magazine uh, that, uh, that I was the second editor of. Uh, but now back to being a sort of freelance writer, which I'm quite looking forward to for 2020. Hmm. Um, so we, we met at university... Uh, and, and went on very different paths, it would seem. Um, but there, we, we got you in because there's lots of things, that I think, lots of synergies that beer and fashion have, uh, increasingly as beer takes maybe cues from fashion. Uh, before we get on to that, I wondered, what, what do people drink in the, in the menswear fashion industry at these events and stuff like that? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the stereotypes that you probably have about uh, the fashion industry are probably true when it comes to fashion parties. Generally, it is, uh, it is champagne that you have at fashion parties, um, which, interestingly, actually, you get, a, you get quite an insight into the alcohol industry through fashion in the same way that you get um, uh, quite an insight into, certainly in London, <clears throat> things like... Um, what kind of restaurants are coming through, what kind of new openings are happening. Because all of these things are kind of cyclical. So often, like, the drinks that are served at fashion parties um, will be the sort of ones that are also coming through, obviously, marketing-wise. I remember Um, working at Cave, and you get all these requests from fashion and art shows going, could you sling us five cases of this? There are influencers there, and you're like... Well, their influence is there, but they're not <laughs> not yeah. for our industry. But so yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things recently is um, I will say I think I've been to very few um, sort of specifically fashion with a capital F kind of parties that have beer as a staple serving. Yeah. Um, generally, you you get a champagne or a, some sort of mixed spirit there. Um, but interestingly, one of the things you've had a lot recently in fashion is um, at fashion parties are things like non-alcoholic spirits or low alcohol low volume spirits like seedlip and mm. acorn coming through um which i think is a probably a signal of the wider trend of um uh low alcohol yeah. uh, drinks within and certainly society. where the marketing budget's going as well sure yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so so not necessarily the best well champagne depends how good the champagne is but there, yes, there is some taste uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, it's not just no, you get some very nice, very nice things there. A lot of uh, lot of Perrier Jouet goes around. So Jouet, sorry. Um, 
save that one. You don't need to get that stuff right on this particular podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I realise it's the wrong audience here. I'm trying to think of the last. So, um, but you do, you do interestingly get, um, get beer sometimes sent out um, to you uh, in relation to certain product launches and things. Yeah, I can imagine in, in more recent years it has started to go down a bit more of a crafty angle as craft beer has become a little bit more sort of on the lips of the, the Guardian reader or whatever and <laughs> in those uh, circles. Well, yeah, I think it's that. It, again, as more attention has gone to uh, being on to small batch um, breweries, those tend to be the beers that are talked about within the fashion industry. Again, like fashion is all about, you know, what's new, what's next, and logically kind of everything that feeds into that industry also ends up being that too. The drinks industry has always been that as well, like styles of drink, as you were saying, that a spirit of some description, but, I mean, 10 years ago, rum was really, like spice rum and different types of rum were really in fashion, and then it moved to... Like well, gin's obviously in vogue at the and moment. Now it's pink gin. Pink gin. Had to change the colour to keep it fresh. Mm. Another with things like Aperol, which has had this huge resurgence, and Campari, which was a big '80s drink. So, like the drinks industry has always survived on fashion trends mm. as well, um, which well, is really interesting because it's then what the the fashionistas of London are, are drinking at their parties. Well, then I, also I think if you're if you're doing anything with a brand anyway, a lot of it is about um, <clears throat> what signifiers you use to kind of communicate the uh, personality of your brand which I think is very important with fashion like beyond clothes what does your brand represent and so often you will get at a party drinks used to communicate something about that brand something about its heritage something about its aspirations let's say Um, I remember a party that um, Tiny Temper did once for his uh, fashion brand I think in its second season Um, and as I say, you've probably got a very uh, stereotype about what kind of fashion parties are like. And this party was really cool because he'd recreated his childhood bedroom as part of it. So you'd go along and like play on games consoles set up as his like childhood bedroom. Um, but the drinks they had there were Red Stripe because that's obviously what he yeah. just liked. So you had Red Stripe served there. And I think actually they had um, Morley's cater the party as well because he <laughs> loves Morley. So it's like, again, like it, was, it was all this kind of process of using food and drink to give an insight into what he liked and what he wanted to sort of represent with his brand. Yeah. I think Tiny Tempo maybe bought the first pair of Nike trainers that were in Back to the Future. So when they made oh, the self-lacing. Oh, yeah, yeah. He Thank did. Um, I had to go and do a shoot. In fact, he lives um, just over the road from it. Um, he, I had to go around his house to do a shoot at one point, and he does have them in a, um, a glass case in the corner. What, he's not his... wearing them? No, they're very much not touched. Um, but they, they are in a glass case a in his house because I saw them in there. <laughs> I guess they would, but surely he gets them out every now and then and self-laces yeah. just so that he can go, oh, cool. Only when he's using his hoverboard, obviously. Uh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I assume the hoverboard has to stay in a glass case as well because it doesn't actually hover. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. 
These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music, and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time, I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers, and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. He's just got one of those ones on wheels that everyone <laughs> called a hoverboard. It's like, it doesn't hover, guys. Um. So what, what you mentioned about Tiny Tempest Party, so uh, using Morley's uh, and Red Stripe, so two pretty retro brands. Well, I don't know if you call Morley a brand, but um, that's something that's, that's happened in the, in the beer industry as well. So lots of uh, breweries have started committing what is basically IP theft uh, and stealing retro brand designs um, like one brewery did like bar on his skateboard for a beer uh, and I, I think some lawyers took took exception to that uh, lots of them are because uh, lots of beer now this is going to blow your mind is brewed with cheap cereal like kids cereal um, so like things like riffing on like tricks for kids stuff like that is all used by right. American breweries to appeal to a certain demographic which is like 30 year old man children like me and Rob, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I, I bought a couple of those, drank them and went, no, that's disgusting. But it reeled me in. Well, like Tiny Rebel are really known for it. Like yeah. if you peel back any of their names or any of their branding, there is something that appeals to sort of the, that 30 to 40 year old that remembers either playing it or watching it or, you know, very, very stylized in that way. And yeah. they're usually such limited runs that by the time anyone picks it up, the beer's long yeah. gone. Because usually you'll get a cease and desist. And in the beer industry, you only brew it once anyway. So it's like, consider this desisted. So is the, is the beer industry similar? Because obviously what we've seen with the fashion industry, um, the fashion industry has been so uh, revolutionized by um, the effect of streetwear um, and the way that streetwear operates as a sort of, I would say brand model, but um, I imagine brand model is the best way to say it. Anyway, because the streetwear uh, model is based on drops and super exclusive little yeah. sort of releases of products throughout the year, um, you're saying that have beer have actually started doing that sort it, of thing it, as well? It's exactly the same thing. You, you build up hype for a drop. It's scarcity marketed. Yeah. Once it's gone, it's gone. Uh, and then you, you gain all that notoriety for whatever it is. Even if you get like a cease and desist, that's good news because um, yeah. it gets people talking about it and then it's gone. And yeah, you... well, it's like, you know, your song getting banned from Top of the Pops back in the day, I suppose. Exactly. It's that. like yeah. actually just drive sales because yeah. it's not being played. Yeah. Because what, what I find mad and a lot of parallels as well in the beer world is brands like Supreme and they were listed as top five most attractive brands in the world last year, I think. And it's a skateboard company. Like, that's what it is. It is a small skateboard company that have created all this hype by making really questionably looking clothes. Like, they don't look great, but people go mad for them. And, like, I, I genuinely think that the guys at Supreme are geniuses because they're just trolling us all. They're like, this is a, a Fender guitar or some hedge clippers with a Supreme logo on it and then people queue and they buy it and it costs shitloads of money. And I suppose like, there are beer brands that do similar things. Well, I think ultimately all, all brands really, kind of no matter what sector they're in, want to do what Supreme have done, which is 
it's it's so much more than a skateboard brand. It is it is a lifestyle. Like wearing Supreme, whatever you are, you know, whether you're using one of their skateboards or whether you've bought their, you know, their brick they released a few years ago, you know, <laughs> for a hundred pounds, whatever it was, you know, that says something about you because you have that on you. And actually, you've I got think too much are... time in your hands <laughs> <laughs> or too much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, and, and there are certain things. You know, there's there's a reason why if you go into a if you go into a bar and you order uh, a can of Beaver Town rather than a pint of I don't know Doom Bar, like that says something about you that you're ordering Beaver Town. Yeah, a hundred percent. Beaver Town is is kind of what I can think of as I don't know. Do, do Beaver Town? I think do they do merch and things? A hundred percent. Yeah. So it's like one of those brands that started at alcohol and is now going over into a. It's, it says something about, it's a lifestyle brand. It says something about you by ordering one. Yeah. Um, which is what fashion brands chase. Like, they, all fashion brands generally want to be that. And actually, I think very few of them manage to, manage to make that transition. Which is interesting, because to me, fashion brands, that, that's everything to them. Like, with beer, you might want to attract them um, in, for, for many different reasons. With fashion, fashion is identity, right? It's, mm. you wear what's, makes you feel comfortable and what projects who you want to be so that what supreme has achieved is the ultimate in that so do the big brands look down on supreme because sometimes you'll get some well-respected slower moving uh more serious breweries looking down on these quick trend chasers is that not true in the fashion industry like these big guys are looking down going wow i mean maybe maybe like 15 years ago, like when streetwear was kind of still kind of off the radar of fashion, people would have, you know, bigger fashion houses might have looked down on it. But there's been such, you know, I, for many big fashion houses now, like it's, it's streetwear that has revitalized them and actually brought a new generation of people into the fold of wanting to own them. Hmm. So, you know, if you think about the level of interest that there is in much as I've always enjoyed, well, the, the tenure of Kim Jones when he was the menswear director of Louis Vuitton, it was their collaboration with Supreme that I think really opened them up to a new sort of, if it's like a hype beastie audience, um, and really tipped them over into the, into the sort of young public conscience. Um, and you could say the same for, uh, I mean, and now, I mean, you've got a lot of brands that are trying to chase that. So arguably that was started with uh, H&M back in the day and actually even before that you could argue that in Britain it was started with Debenhams and designers at Debenhams like there's a whole there's a the rocker John Rocker and yeah these but kind that, of... I mean lots of people forget that like before the Supreme Louis Vuitton days like that was the start of high low collabs was basically Debenhams like they were doing it before H&M was doing it um, so I don't think that's that's the case now I think maybe certain people would have looked down on it 15 years ago, but I think now streetwear is, is the sort of dominant force within, certainly within high fashion. But like, streetwear is fashionable at the moment, and it was even in our lifetime, at a time it was very, very popular, like in the, the 90s, early 90s, and that sort of even styles come back around, and fashion is very cyndical, it seems, like, mm. you know, what, what is next after the street streetwear craze because it probably won't go on forever and will it you know go back to really skinny jeans and tight t-shirts like it was in the beginning of the noughties or 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that has caused up in a lot of things, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, sort of social uh, things that have changed. Um, I think the thing that's different now with, obviously there's always been a certain amount of crossover between sportswear and, uh, and high fashion. But ultimately, up until very, you know, the past sort of 15 years, decade or so, <clears throat> since the turn of the century, um, the thing that's really changed is, whereas back in the day, um, the ranks of the top echelons of high fashion were kind of sort of off limits to streetwear, now streetwear, people from a streetwear background are the people that are most influential at those ranks, so like Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton, who is you know, an, an, a not formally trained designer who now has the reins of one of the most powerful um, luxury companies in the world. So no, so the, the really interesting question actually to what you're talking about is where is this going? Um, the answer to that question is I'm really not sure. Fashion is of course cyclical, but actually the players at the top have ostensibly changed. So, you know, I don't think it's that predictable anymore. Um, and also, you know, fashion as I knew it when I was getting into the fashion industry, which was, you know, fashion industry dominated by very sort of uh, quite conservative tailoring, a lot of like um, uh, Italian style, like peacocking kind of, that was the kind of, you know, think Kanye West circa 2008, 2009, like that kind of 808s and heartbreak era of, of Kanye where he was very tailored. Um, I think a lot of that was caught up in a lot of social factors as well. Um, that was certainly caught up, I think, with the second, maybe even the first dip of the recession with the popularity of Mad Men. Like, tailoring was very yeah, much... Yeah. Like, young people wanted to dress like their grandpas during that time, whereas now they don't. Like, it's been a notable change. So maybe we'll go back to tailoring, but we're already seeing, seeing tailoring coming back into menswear um, just in a very different way. Like, now it's all very loose and quite 90s again, as the 90s, you know, revival continues apace. I just didn't think I'd ever see brands like Kappa and Poppers again, and now they're, yeah. like, everywhere. It's, it's bonkers. But it just shows you all these brands that just come and back around. Are, yeah. the, are these brands still owned by the same people, run by the same people, or have they, they revolutionised to get to that point again? Well, some of them... So, I can't speak for all of them, obviously, but there's a, there's a mix of... Some of them will have been brought out by bigger players. <clears throat> some of them will have sort of clung on for the past 20 years since they maybe had a heyday in the 80s or 90s. Um, and have now suddenly got adopted by... And often that will be because they've been adopted by bigger fashion brands to do a collaboration. They'll have suddenly got really popular again. Um, or they'll have been completely revived altogether as a new brand. So if you think of something like Fiorucci, which was a massive, like, 80s Italian brand that was bought out and revived a few years ago, I think by a couple of the, a couple of the editors at Vogue, if I remember rightly, and is now like back on the scene. They've, they've just had their first menswear collection that was designed by a London designer called Daniel W. Fletcher, who's one of my favourites. Um, but it's a mixture of all of those three, basically. Mm. Uh, I just like the thought of people at brands like Kappa or Alessa just being like, we're back in, lads, and then they, they <laughs> yeah. work for a bit, and then back in the gang. Like, it's going down again. It's like going on holiday for another 20 years, <laughs> and we'll just hope it comes back around again. But it's interesting. It's like we're in the middle of this 90s revival, um, and as a child who lived through the 90s, that's an age where I was just starting to buy clothes, um, 
I did buy a, a few sportswear brands. So, like, I remember I had an LSE tracksuit back in the day. Um, but there are a lot of brands that actually are still around now that have been around since then that I don't feel have necessarily managed to recapture the magic of what made them special and popular the first time around. So, you know, if you look at something like, I mean, much as I have a, a very big soft spot for them, you look at somewhere like Gap. Um, Gap hasn't come back in this 90s era in a huge way. I mean, when you, it's when still you a very read functional, about it... It's a functional brand still now. It's like if I need a jumper for a holiday and I haven't got the right thing, I'm like, oh, it's probably yeah. 20 quid in Gap. They had a really good ad campaign, actually, about five years ago, and it was for denim wear, and it just said dress normal. I thought that was <laughs> yes, a big, that, that summed up Gap really well. But there, there was a thing for Normcore for a bit as well. Yeah. I don't, it might have oh, even been you. very much. Oh, is that still a, going on? Yeah. Because I remember when Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the, the Labour Party and people were talking about his fashion sense. And I'm like, wait, what? This is, this is where we've deconstructed fashion to the point where we yeah. don't know what fashion is anymore, surely. But I didn't understand the concept of non-core at the time. It's weird. I mean, the, the ebb and flow in, uh, in, in the fashion industry and certainly with fashion journalism is what is fashion and what is style. And I think when you're starting out, you know, I've been in the fashion industry now writing about um, menswear for, you know, t 10 years. Um, when you sort of first get into the fashion industry, you're kind of told, like, fashion and style are two very different things. Like, fashion is trends that come and go. Style is... Like undeniable, uh, the fashion is fleeting. Well dressed. Like if you are well dressed, if you look back at a picture from the sixties of Steve McQueen, that sure it involves certain bits of fashion, but it also involves style. Like he's just a timelessly stylish person. And actually, what I think you start to realise when you've worked in an industry for long enough, and I'm sure this is the same in in beer as well, is that actually style isn't a fixed. It's not a fixed uh, thing. Style, the idea of what is stylish changes not as quickly as what is fashionable. But now, if I look back at... So if you look through a magazine at the moment and they're looking back at kind of style icons throughout history or whatever, like fashionable men, fashionable Hollywood men, um, at the moment you'll be seeing a lot of the men being posited in there are generally from the 70s to the 90s. Whereas when I... So um, I'm trying to think of some sort of... Like Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, um, those Harrison kind of Ford. stars. And Harrison Ford, 80s Harrison Ford, you get yeah. a lot of. Um, but when I was getting into fashion, those people were mostly 50s and 60s because that was what fashion was at that time. That was Mad Men. That was, you know, single-breasted suits and drainpipe trousers and skinny ties. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that must be similar, I would have thought, with alcohol in that you were certainly, you have certain things that are seen as timeless, but that quality of timelessness changes. You, yeah, I mean, you definitely have that. So for the last sort of <clears throat> maybe 10 years in beer uh, in the UK, mixed firm stuff's been very trendy. Well, obviously, IPAs have been the, the, the fashion thing, and the trend, I think, has been for uh, mixed fermentation, um, sort of uh, super niche Belgian brewing, 
And now I feel like that's slightly twisting back to traditional British brewing. Yeah. So real ale is becoming well. cool again. And lager as well is sort of competing for that space. This is something sure. that you see people go full circle. Like yeah. uh, we would sometimes when we we're discussing beer, like the journey of the, the beer drinker and everyone starts drinking sort of cooking lager and then you sort of work your way around the circle. You get into pale ale and then IPAs and then you get a bit more adventurous, big stouts. You go to mixed firm stuff and then you end up back at lager again. And yeah, everyone yeah. Fuck, really, that's yeah. drinkable. It's so yeah. good. It's Which so is like putting streetwear back on going, God, that's comfortable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it is funny. It is so uh, cylindrical and it goes in these, these movements that you can just follow. Mm. And then there's the breweries that sort of stick to their guns and know they're very good at making certain yeah. things and there's the breweries that just follow the hype train and they're like is this getting popular because we've just brewed one and then the next week they're trying to brew something else that's I maybe popular it's got yeah it's like you, you can track a hurricane or you can track the whole season of hurricanes and one will happen slower but it's still very different to the season before um which yeah i mean the cliche is that that fashion is fleeting style is forever but you are right like style evolves as well Um, and the best you can really hope as a person is to sort of look back at you in the 2000s and not cringe but you probably will cringe at some point in your life it's impossible to (laughs) I when I first met Nick and I was in hoodies and leather jackets and baggy jeans and now I look back at that and that was that was 10 years ago and I, I cringe when I look at the photos of us at uni. Oh, yeah. well, Not you. I, well, you were in, no, you, you were in suits mostly. When I was there, yeah, I mean, yeah. I was literally that, that, those kids that I was saying about that used to dress like their grandpa. Like, that was, yeah. my, that was my vibe in 2010. Like, I was wearing little bow ties and things. <laughs> I remember when I went for my interview at, at Mr. Porter, which was my first, it was my second job after, after City. Um, but it was my first real sort of fashion editorial job. Um, I went for my interview there and I was sitting at the, uh, in the food court at Westfield where Mr. Porter's based. It's based um, above the village. And I was wearing like a sort of uh, a fair aisle jumper and a little sort of blue tweed bow tie and a pair of jeans, I think, and a pair of loafers. And this guy who, I mean, was not a day under 75, came up to me and asked me where I got my jumper from. <laughs> and I think that was the moment where I started to maybe sort of realise that maybe um, I needed to sort of change a little bit what I was doing. But I genuinely Suddenly did become the guy with the briefcase at school. Yeah, I mean, well, I basically, I think probably was that guy anyway. Oh, right. So <laughs> I think I yeah, always insist on like umbrellas at school and not coats and things like that. I was that guy. Um, but yeah, that was a fairly changing moment for me. Um... <laughs> I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. You know, I, I they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. We, we touched on it a little bit earlier um, about how street, streetwear designers had, had become high fashion designers. Mm. Um, does, two-prong question, does independence and does quality matter with these brands? So in beer, there's a lot of very bad IPAs that sell very well because they're marketed in the right way and they'll sell anyway because they're marketed that way. And secondly, loads of brands trade off the fact that they're not owned by a bigger, less flexible, potentially unethical, less cool brand. Does that play the same? Um, well, I suppose that's a, maybe a two-part question for fashion. Um, I don't think... If you're talking about luxury brands... Um, 
I'm not sure that the idea of them being independent necessarily maybe weighs on most consumers' minds. Um, it might do on certain consumers. Um, and I think if actually if you're looking at um, uh, maybe things like small batch denim makers or something like that, that probably would weigh on certain people's minds and would be a decision-making uh, factor in where you're buying jeans from. Um, when it comes... And I say that because most well-known high fashion brands are part of a conglomerate um, you know you're, you're part of Caring which is Gucci Group you're part of Chanel you're part of LVMH um, however um, the idea of craftsmanship I think is an interesting one um, and is interesting because I think up until very recently there has been very little investigation of craftsmanship and sustainability in a lot of brands. And actually, I don't think that's limited to the luxury industry. I think that's throughout the fashion industry. Um, but certainly for the luxury industry, I mean, there have been some very embarrassing stories for a lot of big high fashion brands um, about their um, practices when it comes to um, uh, getting rid of excess stock, um, their practices on how they make their clothes, the practices of selling things that seem to suggest that they are from a country but they're actually made in another country yeah. this whole like design made in shoes where the like the soles were made in Italy but everything else of the shoe was made in in China oh well i don't i don't know about that but there are certainly examples of um yeah basically if you're talking about like sustainability and carbon neutrality and air miles there are certainly examples of things being like one part is made here, one part is made here, and then it's all assembled in the UK well, I, I, and told, yeah. said that it's a UK yeah, product or a yeah. French product, yeah. if you know what I mean. Um, so, but I think increasingly, like, craft is something that is certainly to a millennial audience and a Gen Z audience, like the up-and-coming, obviously they don't make up a huge majority of the luxury industry's customers right now, but increasingly going forward, that will be something that will be something that's uh, investigated a lot more by those customers. Because if you're paying... Well, if you're paying £400 for a T-shirt, I think we're in this era of fashion at the moment where brand and visible branding is seen as the thing that you're buying into and not actually the quality of what that product is that has the brand emblazoned on it, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. And I think that will change going forward because ultimately, you know, for luxury, you kind of hope that you're preserving some sort of craft if you're paying those prices. And I think that's... I think increasingly high-end brands are getting wise to that. And I think you've seen a lot recently of high-end brands uh, really starting to... Uh, shout about their credentials in those areas more to set themselves apart from other brands because it's a very crowded marketplace if you're charging a lot of money for your clothes there aren't that many customers out there um, so you know you have the caring the caring group have now said they're going to go fur free so it's things like that which when you'd have thought like fur is a massive like it used to be a massive luxury item you know you've got whole fashion houses that use fur. Um, so a whole group of companies making that kind of statement is a very strong one that, that says something about them and their approach to looking after the planet. The stereotype as well of the type of person that can afford a luxury fashion brand 
I mean, sweeping statement here, but is also the type of person that you'd imagine that doesn't give a fuck about where the brands come from and the condition, you know, like, yeah. to like 10 years ago. And I think what you said spot on. I think there's been a real dynamic change and shift about people maybe being more cautious and thinking a lot more about where things are coming from, the environment, if it's organic, all that type of stuff. That's like really, that's in fashion at the moment, whereas maybe 10 years ago or even longer, you sort of just think of the, the rich Italian man's wife who just goes on mad shopping sprees and buys these thousand pound shoes or whatever. Like, do they care about that? And that has been such a, a sea change in the last sort of, I don't know, 10 years, maybe less even. I think there are a lot of there are still a lot of customers out there that really probably care about brand association more than they do the actual clothes that brand is on, if you know what I mean. Um, but I think one thing that I find very interesting for younger customers is that there's a new sort of generation of consumer coming through um, who are just wanting to buy smarter. It's not that they necessarily will think. I don't have much money, so I'm not going to spend money on clothes. It's like, I don't have much money, so I'm going to save for something that will last me, something that I'll wear a lot, um, and something that has like a proven track record of durability. So weirdly, you have now a younger customer who is kind of willing to spend more money on clothes maybe than their parents or their grandparents' generation. But they will only part with that money if there is... The enough of a reason for them to do it that means they won't have to buy that item again anytime soon or that they're supporting craft in some way, which I think is, is really interesting because normally you would associate that crowd, you know, a young crowd, a teen crowd with fast fashion because they can change all the time and keep up with trends. And Yeah, so that's going to be my next question. So fast fashion, how much is that to do with the, uh, the, the ethics of, of uh, reducing air miles, reducing throwing away clothes and increasing the quality of what you earn, own? And how much of that is people who buy fashionable, seasonable stuff that they don't care that it doesn't cost that much because it's going out, out in the bin in six months' time? Well, I think really that... The thing is, like, it's fast fashion has a lot to answer for. It has a lot to answer for, for working conditions, for um, its... It, well working conditions for its staff in certain places around the world. Um, it has a lot to answer for for air miles. It has a lot to answer for the fact that we are completely saturated by product in society now and the fact that a vast majority of new material that's made is just thrown away every year. Um, you know, there are, but that is a problem that does go through all of the fashion industry. Um, you know, much as I love working in fashion, there's no denying that it's one of the most polluting uh, industries on the planet. Um, and I think you've seen certain companies have genuine attempts to try and fix that. Um, but you've also had a lot of brands accused of greenwashing recently. Um, so trying to sort of connect with this, like, cool young audience that's into, you know, the environment and protecting the planet um, in a very nominal way um that that i think is something that genuinely is maybe more linked to fast fashion um but is only magnified with fast fashion because fast fashion produces so much product so it feels disingenuous if if that is if there is greenwashing it's it's more noticeable um 
which is why the other week you know you had Extinction Rebellion targeting Zara because they were accusing it of of greenwashing. But I think it's it's easier for a high street brand to get caught out with that because they produce so much stuff. I did hear some rumor. I did, I, the brand wasn't identified, but um, that there are some flash fashion brands that if you return something unused, they'll just chuck it in the bin because it's cheaper to... The, the, the garment is so worthless. It, it costs more money to uh, process the return and make sure it's clean and then resell it. So they just chuck it out. So there's landfill now getting filled up with like unworn garments, which is just completely bonkers and obviously very... So it's not even going to charity. It's no, just... no. You don't look surprised, Nick. Well, <laughs> no. I'm not surprised that that happens a thing. I mean, it's obviously pretty shocking that new things are thrown away um but it's just uh, so much of it is just such a broken system and i mean this is a cross consumer like any consumer good the whole system is yeah i mean it's the rule with food (laughs) like it's not even the exception yeah yeah but i mean it's it goes down to you know i once wrote um a sort of guide to shopping more sustainably for gq a couple of years ago and it goes into such like um minute things that maybe you don't even consider when you're trying to shop more sustainably that that is true of anything not just the fashion industry so even stuff like you know when you're getting something delivered to your house if it's if you bought something online um you should obviously try and if if you are booking a specific time slot for that piece if you need it delivered so like if you need something delivered in half an hour's time or you need something delivered at between one and two the next day that logically means that they are having to send a van either specifically for you to deliver that product or to divert its existing route that would be the most efficient route because they obviously want it to be the most efficient route for them delivering the packages. So it's all down, it's even down to things like that. You can even buy a, an item that you feel is sustainable and you've researched it and it's made very well and the craftsmanship is there and you know they don't use infinite amounts of water to make it or something. But the way you get it delivered is even problematic sustainably. So this is what I mean. Like the whole, like our consumer culture is basically really messed up and there needs to be some big thinking about it. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm just throwing that out. Oh, that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier on about um, the denim industry and I've noticed this in the denim industry. Why are they leading the way in like the organic and the sustainable and... And the bespoke industry as well, like constant bespoke gene adverts thrown at me. Well, comfy pair of jeans, hard to beat. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like it's the lager of the fashion industry. It's like good good lager, can't say no. Good pair of jeans, you need them. Yeah, I've noticed loads of brands that are sort of singing about being organic and trying to get more wear out of your jeans and things like that. Well, I think the thing with... The thing with jeans is, I mean, we're all sitting here and we're all wearing jeans. So I think the reason that you're getting more brands offering things like bespoke jeans is um, that obviously there's something that has almost replaced the need for bespoke suits for a lot of men. Like they will probably wear their jeans. Most guys probably wear their jeans more than anything else in their wardrobe. So actually you have more people willing to spend more money on something they're going to wear that often. And they obviously, again, want something that lasts. Um, But I think the reason you've got so much... they're trying to do so much innovation within the denim industry is because out of the fashion industry, again, it's one of the ones that is often singled out as being um, 
uh, not a particularly sustainable industry um, to grow something, to grow cotton. And this isn't necessarily just a denim thing, but to grow cotton, which is primarily what jeans are made out of. Cotton takes up so, it takes so much water to make um, that you are having people looking into um, uh, ways to reduce that. Um, and there are a variety of ways that, that that can be done. But ultimately, you know, because jeans are such a popular thing, um, you have a lot of people trying to make that more sustainable because it makes it more attractive for an audience that is more interested in sustainability. And, and I guess if, you know, I own three pairs of jeans, um, it, it, you can encourage somebody to spend 100, 150, 200 quid on something that they're going to have three of. Whereas if you try to do that for T-shirts or a winter jacket, well, I don't know who has loads of winter jackets. I bought one, but um, <laughs> it, is, it is winter. <laughs> it is winter. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's something in a, it's not a high turnover product from the start. So you can you I get what is my point? I'm trying to say <laughs> that I guess with jeans, it's a low turnover product. You're not going to buy that many anyway. So you need to maximize the profit you're going to make by making it premium, sustainable, and rugged so it it lasts. Whereas it's hard to encourage a big company to try that with a white t-shirt uh, yeah i mean possibly um but also i just i think there's probably just a lot of uh, there's a lot of attention paid to denim at the moment because as i say it it does take a lot of water to make mm. a pair of jeans um and so that's why i think you've got a lot of companies who maybe have had a light shone onto that investing more in how to be better for the planet than they currently are. Also, the advantage of denim as well is that it's one of the few materials, because often, I mean, you do get deep jeans with stretching, um, but if jeans are 100% cotton, um, they are one of the items you can own that are that can be the most efficiently recycled of anything you own. Um, you can only ever recycle a piece of clothing, the material of a piece of clothing, if it's not a mixed fabric because there's no way of unmixing fabrics yet yep. like that that technology hasn't been invented um so if jeans are normally 100 percent cotton which they generally are unless you have a pair of like skin tight stretchy ones um i think you're having companies like let's say h&m who do recycled jeans increasingly trying to close the loop on that um because it, it can be a really a really wasteful thing to make if you just throw them away do you have any idea what the, the statistic is of how much water it takes for a, a pair of jeans? Not off the top of my head, no. but I'm sure it can be. But, but, you know, that's why you've got a lot of... So in jeans, you have a lot of alternative. It was one of the first products that I can remember that really started to... That you had a lot of investment in alternative fabrics for them. So when I talk about that, I mean like bamboo fibres and stuff like that um, to make, quote-unquote, denim jeans. Um, so no, I don't know off the top of my head. Are you thinking of like a collab, <coughs> or a, a beer and jean collab of who can waste the most amount of water? <laughs> well, no, because I, I know that in, in America, I think the, the average amount of water that it takes to make an American pint of, je American pint of jeans, an American <laughs> pint of beer, um, it, for one pint of beer, it's 11 pints of water. Um, and so I was chatting to a brewery, a brewery called Allagash uh, in Maine, uh, That's a name drop, by the way. Yeah. Just for the just uh, chat to the guys at Allagash. He did tiny temporarily. I thought he was on Strictly. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, they got it down to three, 
uh, and we're super, super proud of that. But to me, that's still kind of terrifying to think um, that it takes three pints of water to make one pint of, of, of beer when you think of the scale at which beer is being produced. So I, I, I presume I'd be terrified to know what these jeans I'm wearing have done to the environment. Well, I think the good thing about... If there is a good thing. The good thing about... The, the fashion industry at the moment is it feels like I mean thanks in most parts with a lot of journalists um, you've, so you've got you've got not, not me um, you've got uh, you know a, a lot of people knowing a lot more about what they're wearing um, than really ever before in history since you know it, you know people were just getting like one outfit made for them a year from their tail that lived down the road in like the 1800s um, you know, we've gone through this massive period of, like, overconsumption through the 20th century, and now I think people are taking a step back and thinking, well, what am I wearing? What is my, you know, why do I need that new thing for a party? Like, maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe I'm fine with what I've got. Um, but we're also as bad as ever because fast, fast fashion is as popular as ever. Like, the high street's dying and online brands... You yeah, you've got the boo- boohoos and all the these that are just like, player. yeah, it's eight quid for a dress, just They're buy doing it. so well at the moment yeah. because people just want to buy, 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 buy really cheap, wear it once, send it back, which is another problem that those companies face. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, like, in, in, a, in an industry where, you know, it's the problem with talking about sustainability in fashion and this is actually a, a thing that can be applied to sustainability really with whatever um, industry you want to talk about, um, is that it's still the impetus on being sustainable is always put on the consumer, not really on the brand that's making the stuff. Yeah. So it's, and, that, and that's problematic in itself. You know, there are some people that can go out and spend... 600 pounds on a suit that's been made you know in a sustainable way by a tailor with natural dyes etc etc sounds very cheap um, for a tailor made suit <laughs> well uh, <laughs> you know maybe we'll jack that up an extra thousand or something okay. <laughs> um, but you know th- there are people that can afford that and people that can consciously make that choice to be more sustainable in that way um, that is not the majority of the fashion industry or people buying fashion. And ultimately, what the sustainability argument at the moment does is, as I say, it just puts the impetus on the consumer. And really, you know, there are people in society at the moment that need to wear clothes, that, you know, are living on the poverty line. And it is not... They are not going to think, oh, well, I'm going to go out and buy a 60-pound T-shirt because it's better for the environment. Like, that's just never going to happen. Or even that it's going to last because, you know, cash flow is such a big issue for these poor people where, you know, it probably would make more sense. It was an interesting thread on Twitter I read about how being poor makes you poorer because you can't afford the 60-quid T-shirt because you don't have 60 quid in your bank. So you have to buy the 6-quid T-shirt more than 10 times. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's... Until something really happens in at a government level to try and make this more of a... to try and normalise sustainability more in society and not put the impetus on the consumer or the brand to do it kind of out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, Like, we're not going to... Like, those brands that are cheaper, that are fast fashion brands, I just don't think are going anywhere because, like, it's not... At a certain level, it's not a matter of choice. It's not a matter of wanting to be fashionable. It's a matter of surviving and having things to wear. Yeah. And 
there are just people that can't afford to pay more than a pound for a T-shirt. But that exists in the market, so people are obviously going to take advantage of that. Yeah, you've, you've got to make sustainability the easier, the cheaper choice. It's like, I'd much rather take a train, but if a plane is half the price, what am I supposed to do about that? Like, hmm. I need to save money. Yeah. I have Honestly, a podcast. Like, <laughs> at, the, at the moment, it rather feels like sustainability is... It's, it's still sort of perceived as a bit of a luxury. Um, yeah. And it shouldn't be. Like, as I say, our consumer system is really messed up to a certain extent. Um, and fashion is a, you know, much as I love working in it, is a really polluting industry. And there are some serious conversations that happen, that need to happen. But I think a lot of that needs to come from the government. And often governments, you know, um, thoughts can sometimes be wrong on these things. So what do you do? I think that's where beer's changed so much in the in recent years because it's kind of the opposite beer was like a commodity product and there wasn't really any luxurious brands in beer it was just all cost the same price cheap lager or cheap cask and then in the last sort of 10 years it's become there's been a luxury arm added to it and now you can buy very expensive beers the cheap beer still exists cheap beer still is better than any other beer but it's sort of growing and taking a lot of influence from what you've been talking about from fashion and things like that um, but it never had it before mm. and uh, so it'll be interesting to see what else it can take from, from fashion um, Well I think sustainability is going to be, a big, thing, be yeah. a big thing, we don't talk about sustainability half as much as we should particularly in the more luxurious side of beer um, It's actually one thing a lot of Belgian breweries have been on for a long time Yep um, they're very proud of their sustainability, but you, I think I suppose again because it costs a lot of money to be a sustainable brewery. Mm. So a lot of these startups at the moment in railway arches in London can't afford that equipment to be more sustainable. No. And in the long run, it will save them money, but in the short term, they don't have the capital to do so. Do you think brands like Supreme and Palace, and then brands like Balenciaga, who are very popular at the moment, are trolling us? <laughs> Trolling you and Johnny specifically? No, no, not us because we don't buy them. But the consumer, because like they're making some really ridiculous things. And I get maybe to be less of here. Do, do you think they love the products that they're making, or do you think it's got to the point where they know what makes money and they're cashing in while while make hay while the sun while the sun shines? No, I think I'm going to stick to my. You <laughs> still think, think they're trolling? Some of the things that are coming out are are completely ridiculous, and. Like Balenciaga, particularly like a T-shirt staple to a T-shirt type of thing, um, and it's so stupid. But people are like, "Sweet, it's got that brand well, on it." And so it, is it just like getting to the rich boy who's willing to spend that money on a stupid T-shirt? So my um, second or third fashion week, um, I was sitting there and um, I went to Craig Green's um, catwalk show. Um, and his first catwalk show had models walking down the catwalk with basically like art installations on their face. So big like planks of wood. Um, and I think it was something like the Daily Telegraph ran it like front page of the next day's papers. And it had the headline like what a plank or something like that. Um, and I think a lot of people said kind of what you're saying. It was like, the fashion industry kind of trolling us, like, no one to wear this in real life. Like, this is all a bit crazy. Um, 
And the thing is, like, there's often a real disconnect between what's seen on a catwalk and what's seen um, in shops because generally at a high fashion level, those things don't translate down to what actually ends up in the shop. Like that's, yeah, it's like a stylized it's version. An artistic, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's an artistic idea that will get boiled down into a much safer into a much safer um, collection when it, when it hits shops. Um, so I think you always have things that are in a collection that are there to gain editorial attention, like the planks on the faces, like Supreme releasing a brick, um, like Balenciaga doing uh, two shirts sewn together. Um, but what you do see is like those things do end up trickling down into the high street, other brands, art, gradually. Like, it doesn't happen immediately. But, you know, if you look at what has happened at Balenciaga since Vetemont kind of um, sort of took it over, um, is, like, that silhouette for men has very much filtered down into kind of everything that you now see. Like, that is all... It was all preempting this sort of loosening of the silhouette, this casualizing of it. That, with streetwear then resulted in everyone, every man basically wearing looser clothes that is, you know, vaguely interested in, even if they're not interested in fashion, like the sort of skate influence from, uh, from Palace, from Supreme, that's all filtered into the fashion industry. Um, so there will always be bonkers items that they only make three of and like, they'll get, only sell on Okini or something. I but. get the catwalk side of it because that is complete stylization to get a point across. But then when it filters into actually what's sold on the shop by the brands, that is when I'm, I kind of get more sceptical because I'm like, this is daft, this is completely stupid, and it costs so much money, but people don't mind doing it because it has the right logo on it. And if that didn't have yeah. that logo on it, they must be thinking, I look like a bit of a dafty. But, yeah. but, but often, as I say, like those items, it will only be like literally one or two of them made worldwide and they'll go into like one shop and someone will buy them but they probably they probably won't wear them they'll probably put them into a like an archive or a collection or something um so and and what it, and the, the sort of quote-unquote safer items end up going out there. so i think for example like most recently those sort of big bulky balenciaga trainers yeah like they're kind of the most recent thing that i think has come from a catwalk and people are originally like this is, this is really weird. Um, and now they are kind of... They have signaled a step change in trainers yeah, across the industry. Um, and, of course, some people will have had the original like bonkers ones. In the same way that when Prada did their sort of huge, like, sold uh, brogues and derby shoes about six, seven years ago now, um, they gradually, like, led to loads and loads of people copying those. Um, so, as I say, like a couple, the, those sort of more artistic pieces, they get released, but there really not many of them get made as a general point. So they're not trolling us. That's all. I don't think they're. <laughs> I don't think they're trolling us. But every brand, as with any you know, any beer brand, it's the doing something that 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 gets onto the front page of you know the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, yeah. That's like money can't buy publicity. Um, and I suppose you know there must be beer brands that that do effectively like the, the same sort of that, thing. That's why like, I asked. We've done a we've done a beer that is flavoured with like, I don't know one of CBD the one something. of them that springs to mind is Omnipolo, who they're an amazing brewery, but they really push the the boundaries of what you could consider as beer. 
Yeah, they did a beer that, where they just put burger and chips in. Um, but it, weirdly, I think the beer does it the other way around. So beer, often we have an idea that's fairly reasonable. It's a little tweak on something that's already been there. And then we push it to its logical conclusion and then go, yeah, that was silly, sorry. And we sort of rein it in again. So we had like really big, bitter West Coast IPAs and then brewed one that was 1,000 IPU that uh, McKellar did. It just tasted like earwax. And everyone went, well, that was rancid. And then we reined it back in again. So I think we're too reactive maybe in the beer industry and we're not pushing the envelope and then working out what's acceptable, what's sellable, what people are excited by. Instead, we're constantly pushing them a little bit further to the point where we go, whoops, uh, uh, that was a bad idea. If it just tastes bad, then you just don't want it. Whereas, yeah. with, I suppose, with fashion, if it, if it doesn't look good, but you've got style, you might be able to pull Still it off. Still a statement. But, it, but it's something horrible. It's yeah. just horrible. I suppose it's just all about, <laughs> it's all about pushing boundaries, though, isn't it? Like, at the end of the day, I'm sure that the, the, even if a brewery makes something that tastes god-awful... Um, but they've learned something during that process. Like, it'll filter down, no pun intended, um, and it will influence something they launch, I'm sure. Yeah, um, you, you said something earlier, I forget what it was, that made me think about how actually a lot of fashion brands are probably doing the same as breweries, which is kind of inflicting their experiments on us to see what the reaction is and what they can learn from that. Yeah. Because um, with all these endless different beers, some of which are not very good at all, at least they get that feedback back and on social media you can analyze the data like literally how many likes how many retweets or yeah. likes on instagram or whatever and funnily enough the brewery that brewery omnipolo that i mentioned uh, the guy that started it started cheap monday all oh, right okay uh, so yeah. see, he's, crossover. yeah yeah so he i mean there are so many parallels yeah there and they've done such a good job at pushing the the boundary of what you know you consider beer to be well and i'm sure that it's those brands whether it's fashion or beer that that push the envelope that are actually the ones that will last like brands any brand that sort of follows a trend as opposed to setting a trend you know is never really remembered in the same way that a brand that yeah, did it first you've got to do it better or else yeah and that's completely random like you never know when you're gonna you know hit magic in a bottle yeah. but you know when it happens it's great and you know it means everyone starts drinking IPA God help us, I wish they'd stop. So, Rob, I think you've got a chip on your shoulder. Did you buy a Supreme Brick? I've never, sadly. I was in the queue. <laughs> they they run out of bricks before you got yeah, there. I got, it's I got, probably just someone on the street. Aside. Um, <laughs> but it is mad. If you ever go to Bone Daddy's um, for some lovely ramen, it's right opposite the Supreme shop, and you can see like everyone queuing to get their box logo T-shirt or whatever other weird... That, it's mainly because it's so, usually so ugly. And then Palace, which is another brand we talked about. I quite like skateboarding from like playing too much Tony Hawk's back in the day. Of and they're both skateboarding brands. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's why uh, I still love Papa Roach yeah, for yeah, my sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but what's interesting about that, I think, and is maybe why beer has been adopted in trends, is the accessibility of it. Like... A Supreme T-shirt's a rip-off, but it's still only like a 40 quid or a 30 quid T-shirt. And then, but it's quite rare, so you can resell it for more money. And like beer, in, in the sort of collecting sense, is relatively cheap, I suppose. So he, he talked about luxury fashion a lot, and you, you know, I don't know, Louis Vuitton. I know you wear a lot of that Louis Vuitton nonsense. Oh, I mean, look at me, yeah. <laughs> You're head to toe in that, <laughs> that leather top with a wee V on it in gold. Um, but like that's really expensive, and not everyone can afford that. But like, even if you're on the breadline, you can save up for a couple of weeks and 
the, he talked about streetwear a lot, and a big part of that is it's the mass market appeal. So a North Face or whatever is popular at the moment is very expensive, but it's within reach. Whereas luxury fashion, Italian brands or whatever, cost so so much money, like dropping thousands and thousands of pounds on shoes or whatever. Like people can't do that, and beer is a bit like that. It's you, an it's an affordable luxury, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you can buy an, an Omnipolo beer that costs far too much money for ten quid. Whereas if you go into wine, if you go into whiskey, if you go into all these other things, that's like mega bucks. So you're saying we've got the same kind of clientele that fine wine and fine whiskey does, but no, no, I'm people saying, who I'm can't afford we're, as much. We're street fashion. Oh right, okay. Which is taking off at the moment. Yeah. If you know what I mean, like we're the masses, because. The best beer in the world still doesn't cost a lot of money. Well, it does on the secondary market. I recently heard that Mills, which is a mix, mixed fermentation brewery uh, in, in, I think it's in Hertfordshire, uh, you can buy a bottle of theirs at a very reasonable price, uh, and now you can sell it online to uh, European collectors for about 500 quid. Bloody hell. Same for with like Boccarada and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in that league now. But that's what happens with Supreme or Palace and brands like that that are... So lots of that stuff's resold. People are queuing up to sell it on. 100%. You go on eBay and there's collective forums and things like People that. People are so weird! For a plain white t-shirt that says Supreme on it. And I do... I really identified with that when Nick was talking that it is for everyone. Everyone can enjoy beer and accept beer and that type of fashion is within reach of everyone and that is where the big sea change in the fashion industry has been. He discussed that, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was like luxury Italian brands and it was all these old hats that were running the show and you'd need to spend all this money to be part of it in your yacht and, you know, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. just out of reach and now these young, young people have come in that aren't sort of classically trained designers that are running these fashion brands because of what they represent um, and street fashion like these brands Supreme like Supreme was one of the top five most sought after brands in the world last year but what, what's kind of interesting is that because there was never like a, a beer equivalent of Louis Vuitton there's almost this weird battle that craft beer is having with uh with macro beer around who can occupy that space. So although we're the streetwear brands and we're doing the streetwear stuff, we're doing single drops, we're making people queue, we're doing these wacky things that draw attention of the press. We're, we're, we're also, um, we're, we're not fighting anything by doing that. There's, the macro breweries aren't doing that. So you've got like the Peroni, I forget what it's called. It's like, the, it's like a buck and it's supposed to be like, served with a, a white handkerchief and stuff like this. But we, we don't have that thing to react against. We were reacting against cheap commodification by producing better stuff while taking all of the inspiration from the people who were reacting against expensive stuff. So craft beer is calling this weird thing where I don't entirely know what, what it's going for. And I think in America it works a bit better because beer's a lot cheaper over there. Yeah. In the UK, when you're spending eight quid on an IPA, you know, that's fucking mental. And I do it, but it's still crazy that we consider ourselves the small batch every man drink. Yeah. But what he was talking about as well, um, which we have adopted in the, the beer world, which is quite strange, is that it's sort of just anything limited. 
becomes then far more desirable. Mm. I mean, is it the bears, the diamond supplier allegedly do that with diamonds to control it? And it's like we're doing that with beer and Supreme are doing that with their T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's scarcity marketing and it started because we didn't have the production quantities in these breweries that were making the stuff that people wanted. And now, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, uh, a choice. Uh, you, you look at Verdant Putty, which has caused so much excitement in the last sort of month or so. And anger. And anger. <laughs> Always anger comes with the excitement. You know, they, they could, if they could get hold of the Galaxy Hops, they could make it all year. But why would they do that? Because yeah. it's not just about them releasing this What is a Stunning Beer. It's about doing it once a year and getting that share of the conversation for that amount of time. Yeah. And dealing with brands like that, that you import, it's this, such a fine line between bringing it in regularly enough that the demand is there and the scarcity is there and people want it and not and they're sort of making the sales but not saturating the market because if you bring in too much then it's everywhere people don't want it and then it's it's done mm. and the fashion world certainly the modern fashion world and streetwear brands has really captured that like they're selling t-shirts that are definitely overpriced they're not good they're not good quality but they're, four, they're still only like 30 or 40 quid they just release them in limited numbers that people need a queue for. They can resell them for a lot of money. Like it is, the beer world has. You can literally that. replace and T-shirt with beer with with that whole sentence. Really, it was funny actually when we were sort of sorry mi- IPA, not beer. <laughs> we were mid flow with Nick, and I was like, "Fuck, Omnipolo are this are the obvious brand that you probably have in the back of your mind when you're talking about all this." And he worked for Cheap Monday. Yeah. He started Cheap Monday, which is a... So he learned that trade in, yeah. in fashion. He's a, and he's a genius. And I did quite like... He put my trolling thing to rest a little bit, that a lot of brands in the fashion world will do stuff on the catwalk, which is an exaggerated version. So if, like, baggy jeans are coming back in, they'll wear the stupidest baggy jeans alive so they can exacerbate the fact that baggy jeans are coming back in. But then so people buying them are like, well, at least it's not what I saw on the catwalk. Well, Thank it's God. Just, it's to show that that's coming back in and like brands like Omnipolo or maybe they're doing these mad things to push the boundaries. Do you know, this is not something I thought about while we were with Nick, but a little part of me now, now that I've seen it this way, makes me think that what's being released in cans, in single drops, in breweries all the time, that's catwalk, right? Because yeah. when I go to a pub, I'm not drinking that double IPA. I'm drinking a lovely crisp yeah. beer that's maybe inspired by that. So it's like the, the can launches are the catwalk and the pubs are the high street where you're just wearing something inspired by that but is actually practical. And then you've got fast fashion. And then you've <laughs> just churning it out, <laughs> paying the bills, fattening the yeah. goose. Yeah. Um, the, the only other thing that might be worth touching on again as well was the sustainability angle, which craft beer is only just starting to think about. And sadly, only fashion as well. Yeah, um, well, yeah, they should have thought about it a long time ago. Such yeah. a drain on resource, and completely. And it, he blew my mind with the whole, once you mix threads, it's non-recyclable. I went home and checked my jeans. I've, got, I've, I've, I've not got recyclable jeans, Rob. Oh, dear. And what do you do at that point? They're non-recyclable. I've got you, to wear them forever. You need to identify with a... A sustainable jean brand. I do need to find one. I mean, like I do mine. get served endless fucking ads for them, so I just yeah. pick one. But it is so true, and there is now like an attitude where I think people are getting better, and they're trying to like buy for clothes for that last longer and that they're sustainable. But there's always going to be a huge part of the market. Um, 
in a way more so now than ever, even though sustainability is like hot on everyone's lips. But because of like Instagram and all that type of stuff, people feel the need, they constantly need new stuff. And not everyone can afford it. Like yeah, I can't fa- afford fashion it. Fashion Instagrammers, like Instagram influencers, if they need a new outfit for every photo, they're not going to Louis Vuitton yeah. every time, are they? But then everyone that gets influenced by that, which is a lot of, especially like a younger generation, um, feel they need to constantly wear new things. And maybe, you know, beer drinkers, because they follow beer people on social, feel they constantly need to drink new things. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly trying to change. And then that's why they're feeding into these fast fashion brands that can just churn out stuff very cheap. But, you know, they want to look good. They constantly want to be in something new. And they can't afford... New, new. A supreme, new, 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 A supreme brick. Yeah. You're a supreme brick. Uh, guys thank you so much for listening to this episode I hope you enjoyed it Uh, if you've got any suggestions of people or uh, parts of the world uh, industries that you'd like us to cover please do let us know uh, at beer channel or facebook.com slash craft beer channel or youtube.com slash the craft beer channel and we'll be delighted uh, to tell you that we're far too busy and and, and definitely couldn't do a podcast next month Um, have you got any other mates (laughs) <laughs> we, we have just been churning through the mail. I've got other friends. Whether they're worth talking to, I don't know. Um, we do have a podcast for next month, though, which I'm excited to uh, to to be recording. Um, so that that will be out towards the end of Feb. Um, we won't spoil the surprise. We'll just say thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you end of Feb uh, for some more insightful nonsense. Sustainable jeans, you wankers. I drove over to the Sonic Drive-In. Ordered a jalapeno burger. Washed it down with beer, spears, beer, spears, beer, beer, spears, beer, 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 spears, beer, 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 spears, beer, 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 spears, spears, beer, 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 be